international short stories volume three french stories this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by bruce peary international short stories volume three french stories compiled and translated by francis j reynolds gil blas and dr sangrado by alain rené lesage as i was on my way who should come across me but dr sangrado whom i had not seen since the day of my master's death i took the liberty of touching my hat he knew me in a twinkling heyday said he with as much warmth as his temperament would allow him the very lad i wanted to see you have never been out of my thought i have occasion for a clever fellow about me and pitched upon you as the very thing if you can read and write sir replied i if that is all you require i am your man in that case rejoined he we need look no further come home with me you will be very comfortable i shall behave to you like a brother you will have no wages but everything will be found you you shall eat and drink according to the true scientific system and be taught to cure all diseases in a word you shall rather be my young sangrado than my footman i closed in with the doctor's proposal in the hope of becoming an esculapius under so inspired a master he carried me home forthwith to install me in my honourable employment which honourable employment consisted in writing down the name and residence of the patients who sent for him in his absence there had indeed been a register for this purpose kept by an old domestic but she had not the gift of spelling accurately and wrote a most perplexing hand this account i was to keep it might truly be called a bill of mortality for my members all went from bad to worse during the short time they continued in this system i was a sort of bookkeeper for the other world to take places in the stage and to see that the first come were the first served my pen was always in my hand for dr sangrado had more practice than any physician of his time in Valladolid. he had got into reputation with the public by a certain professional slang humoured by a medical face and some extraordinary cures more honoured by implicit faith than scrupulous investigation he was in no want of patience nor consequently of property he did not keep the best house in the world we lived with some little attention to economy the usual bill of fare consisted of peas beans boiled apples or cheese he considered this food as best suited to the human stomach that is to say as most amenable to the grinders whence it was to encounter the process of digestion nevertheless easy as was their passage he was not for stopping the way with too much of them and to be sure he was in the right but though he cautioned the maid and me against repletion in respect of solids it was made up by free permission to drink as much water as we liked far from prescribing us any limits in that direction he would tell us sometimes drink my children health consists in the pliability and moisture of the parts drink water by pailfuls it is a universal dissolvent water liquefies all the salts is the course of the blood a little sluggish this grand principle sets it forward too rapid 
its career is checked our doctor was so orthodox on this head that though advanced in years he drank nothing himself but water he defined old age to be a natural consumption which dries us up and wastes us away on this principle he deplored the ignorance of those who call wine old men's milk he maintained that wine wears them out and corrodes them and pleaded with all the force of his eloquence against that liquor fatal in common both to the young and old that friend with a serpent in its bosom that pleasure with a dagger under its girdle in spite of these fine arguments at the end of a week i felt an ailment which i was blasphemous enough to saddle on the universal dissolvent and the new-fangled diet i stated my symptoms to my master in the hope that he would relax the rigor of his regimen and qualify my meals with a little wine but his hostility to that liquor was inflexible if you have not philosophy enough said he for pure water there are innocent infusions to strengthen the stomach against the nausea of aqueous quaffings sage for example has a very pretty flavor and if you wish to heighten it into a debauch it is only mixing rosemary wild poppy and other simples with it but no compounds in vain did he sing the praise of water and teach me the secret of composing delicious messes i was so abstemious that remarking my moderation he said in good sooth gil blas i marvel not that you are no better than you are you do not drink enough my friend water taken in a small quantity serves only to separate the particles of bile and set them in action but our practice is to drown them in a copious drench fear not my good lad lest a superabundance of liquid should either weaken or chill your stomach far from thy better judgment be that silly fear of unadulterated drink i will insure you against all consequences and if my authority will not serve your turn read celsus that oracle of the ancients makes an admirable panegyric on water in short he says in plain terms that those who plead an inconstant stomach in favour of wine publish a libel on their own viscera and make their constitution a pretence for their sensuality as it would have been ungenteel in me to run riot on my entrance into the medical career i pretended thorough conviction indeed i really thought there was something in it i therefore went on drinking water on the authority of celsus or to speak in scientific terms i began to drown the bile in copious trenches of that unadulterated liquor and though i felt myself more out of order from day to day prejudice won the cause against experience it is evident therefore that i was in the right road to the practice of physic yet i could not always be insensible to the qualms which increased in my frame to that degree as to determine me on quitting dr sangrado but he invested me with a new office which changed my tone hark you my child said he to me one day i am not one of those hard and ungrateful masters who leave their household to grow gray in service without a suitable reward i am well pleased with you i have a regard for you and without waiting till you have served your time i will make your fortune 
without more ado i will initiate you in the healing art of which i have for so many years been at the head other physicians make the science to consist of various unintelligible branches but i will shorten the road for you and dispense with the drudgery of studying natural philosophy pharmacy botany and anatomy remember my friend that bleeding and drinking warm water are the two grand principles the true secret of curing all the distempers incident to humanity yes this marvellous secret which i reveal to you and which nature beyond the reach of my colleagues has not been able to conceal from me is comprehended in these two articles namely bleeding and drenching here you have the sum total of my philosophy you are thoroughly bottomed in medicine and may raise yourself to the summit of fame on the shoulders of my long experience you may enter into partnership at once by keeping the books in the morning and going out to visit patients in the afternoon while i dose the nobility and clergy you shall labor in your vocation among the lower orders and when you have felt your ground a little i will get you admitted into our body you are a philosopher gil blas though you have never graduated the common herd of them though they have graduated in due form and order are likely to run out the length of their tether without knowing their right hand from their left i thanked the doctor for having so speedily enabled me to serve as his deputy and by way of acknowledging his goodness promised to follow his system to the end of my career with a magnanimous indifference about the aphorisms of hippocrates but that engagement was not to be taken to the letter this tender attachment to water went against the grain and i had a scheme for drinking wine every day snugly among the patients i left off wearing my own suit a second time to take up one of my masters and look like an experienced practitioner after which i brought my medical theories into play leaving those it might concern to look to the event i began on an alguazil constable in a pleurisy he was condemned to be bled with the utmost rigor of the law at the same time that the system was to be replenished copiously with water next i made a lodgment in the veins of a gouty pastry cook who roared like a lion by reason of gouty spasms i stood on no more ceremony with his blood than with that of the alguazil and laid no restriction on his taste for simple liquids my prescriptions brought me in twelve reales shillings an incident so auspicious in my professional career that i only wished for the plagues of egypt on all the hale citizens of Bayadolid. i was no sooner at home than dr sangrado came in i talked to him about the patients i had seen and paid into his hands eight reales of the twelve i had received for my prescriptions eight reales said he as he counted them mighty little for two visits but we must take things as we find them in the spirit of taking things as he found them he laid violent hands on six of the coins giving me the other two here gil blas continued he see what a foundation to build upon i make over to you the fourth of all you may bring me you will soon feather your nest my friend for by the blessing of providence there will be a great deal of ill health this year 
i had reason to be content with my dividend since having determined to keep back the third part of what i recovered in my rounds and afterward touching another fourth of the remainder then half of the whole if arithmetic is anything more than a deception would become my perquisite this inspired me with new zeal for my profession the next day as soon as i had dined i resumed my medical paraphernalia and took the field once more i visited several patients on the list and treated their several complaints in one invariable routine hitherto things had gone well and no one thank heaven had risen up in rebellion against my prescriptions but let a physician's cures be as extraordinary as they will some quack or other is always ready to rip up his reputation i was called in to a grocer's son in a dropsy whom should i find there before me but a little black-looking physician by name dr cuchillo introduced by a relation of the family i bowed round most profoundly but dipped lowest to the personage whom i took to have been invited to a consultation with me he returned my compliment with a distant air then having stared me in the face for a few seconds sir said he i beg pardon for being inquisitive i thought i was acquainted with all my brethren in Bayadolid, but i confess your physiognomy is altogether new you must have been settled but a short time in town i avowed myself a young practitioner acting as yet under direction of dr sangrado i wish you joy replied he politely you are studying under a great man you must doubtless have seen a vast deal of sound practice young as you appear to be he spoke this with so easy an assurance that i was at a loss whether he meant it seriously or was laughing at me while i was conning over my reply the grocer seizing on the opportunity said gentlemen i am persuaded of your both being perfectly competent in your art have the goodness without ado to take the case in hand and devise some effectual means for the restoration of my son's health thereupon the little pulse counter set himself about reviewing the patient's situation and after having dilated to me on all the symptoms asked me what i thought the fittest method of treatment i am of opinion replied i that he should be bled once a day and drink as much warm water as he can swallow at these words our diminutive doctor said to me with a malicious simper and so you think such a course will save the patient not a doubt of it exclaimed i in a confident tone it must produce that effect because it is a certain method of cure for all distempers ask signor sangrado at that rate retorted he celsus is altogether in the wrong for he contends that the readiest way to cure a dropsical subject is to let him almost die of hunger and thirst oh as for celsus interrupted i he is no oracle of mine he is as fallible as the meanest of us i often have occasion to bless myself for going contrary to his dogmas i discover by your language said cuchillo the safe and sure method of practice dr sangrado instills into his pupils bleeding and drenching are the extent of his resources no wonder so many worthy people are cut off under his direction no defamation interrupted i with some acrimony a member of the faculty had better not begin throwing stones 
come come my learned doctor patients can get to the other world without bleeding and warm water and i question whether the most deadly of us has ever signed more passports than yourself if you have any crow to pluck with signor sangrado publish an attack on him he will answer you and we shall soon see who will have the best of the battle by all the saints in the calendar swore he in a transport of passion you little know whom you are talking to i have a tongue and a fist my friend and am not afraid of sangrado who with all his arrogance and affectation is but a ninny the size of the little death-dealer made me hold his anger cheap i gave him a sharp retort he sent back as good as i brought till at last we came to fisticuffs we had pulled a few handfuls of hair from each other's head before the grocer and his kinsman could part us when they had brought this about they feed me for my attendance and retained my antagonist whom they thought the more skilful of the two another adventure succeeded close on the heels of this i went to see a huge singer in a fever as soon as he heard me talk of warm water he showed himself so adverse to this specific as to fall into a fit of swearing he abused me in all possible shapes and threatened to throw me out of the window i was in a greater hurry to get out of his house than to get in i did not choose to see any more patients that day and repaired to the inn where i had agreed to meet fabricio he was there first as we found ourselves in a tippling humour we drank hard and returned to our employers in a pretty pickle that is to say so-so in the upper story signor sangrado was not aware of my being drunk because he took the lively gestures which accompanied the relation of my quarrel with the little doctor for an effect of the agitation not yet subsided after the battle besides he came in for his share in my report and feeling himself nettled by the insults of cuchillo you have done well gil blas said he to defend the character of our practice against this little abortion of the faculty so he takes upon him to set his face against watery drenches in dropsical cases an ignorant fellow i maintain i do in my own person that the use of them may be reconciled to the best theories yes water is a cure for all sorts of dropsies just as it is good for rheumatisms and the green sickness it is excellent too in those fevers where the effect is at once to parch and to chill and even miraculous in those disorders ascribed to cold thin phlegmatic and pituitous humours this opinion may appear strange to young practitioners like cuchillo but it is right orthodox in the best and soundest systems so that if persons of that description were capable of taking a philosophical view instead of crying me down they would become my most zealous advocates in his rage he never suspected me of drinking for to exasperate him still more against the little doctor i had thrown into my recital some circumstances of my own addition yet engrossed as he was by what i had told him he could not help taking notice that i drank more water than usual that evening in fact the wine had made me very thirsty any one but sangrado would have distrusted my being so very dry as to swallow down glass after glass but as for him he took it for granted in the simplicity of his heart that i had begun to acquire a relish for aqueous potations 
apparently gil blas said he with a gracious smile you have no longer such a dislike to water as heaven is my judge you quaff it off like nectar it is no wonder my friend i was certain you would before long take a liking to that liquor sir replied i there is a tide in the affairs of men with my present lights i would give all the wine in Valladolid for a pint of water this answer delighted the doctor who would not lose so fine an opportunity of expatiating on the excellence of water he undertook to ring the changes once more in its praise not like a hireling pleader but as an enthusiast in a most worthy cause a thousand times exclaimed he a thousand and a thousand times of greater value as being more innocent than all our modern taverns were those baths of ages past whither the people went not shamefully to squander their fortunes and expose their lives by swilling themselves with wine but assembling there for the decent and economical amusement of drinking warm water it is difficult to admire enough the patriotic forecast of those ancient politicians who established places of public resort where water was dealt out gratis to all comers and who confined wine to the shops of the apothecaries that its use might be prohibited save under the direction of physicians what a stroke of wisdom it is doubtless to preserve the seeds of that antique frugality emblematic of the golden age that persons are found to this day like you and me who drink nothing but water and are persuaded they possess a prevention or a cure for every ailment provided our warm water has never boiled for i have observed that water when it is boiled is heavier and sits less easily on the stomach while he was holding forth thus eloquently i was in danger more than once of splitting my sides with laughing but i contrived to keep my countenance nay more to chime in with the doctor's theory i found fault with the use of wine and pitied mankind for having contracted an untoward relish for so pernicious a beverage then finding my thirst not sufficiently allayed i filled a large goblet with water and after having swilled it like a horse come sir said i to my master let us drink plentifully of this beneficial liquor let us make those early establishments of dilution you so much regret live again in your house he clapped his hands in ecstasy at these words and preached to me for a whole hour about suffering no liquid but water to pass my lips to confirm the habit i promised to drink a large quantity every evening and to keep my word with less violence to my private inclinations i went to bed with the determined purpose of going to the tavern every day end of gil blas and dr sangrado by alain rene le sage international short stories volume three french stories this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Philip Panos. International Short Stories, Volume 3. French Stories, compiled and translated by Francis J. Reynolds. A Fight with a Cannon by Victor Hugo. 
la viviella was suddenly cut short by a cry of despair and at the same time a noise was heard wholly unlike any other sound the cry and sounds came from within the vessel the captain and lieutenant rushed towards the gun-deck but could not get down all the gunners were pouring up in dismay something terrible had just happened one of the carronades of the battery a twenty-four pounder had broken loose this is the most dangerous accident that can possibly take place on shipboard nothing more terrible can happen to a sloop in open sea and under full sail a cannon that breaks its moorings suddenly becomes some strange supernatural beast it is a machine transformed into a monster that short mass on wheels moves like a billiard ball rolls with the rolling of the ship plunges with the pitching seas goes comes stops seems to meditate starts on its course again shoots like an arrow from one end of the vessel to the other whirls around slips away dodges rears bangs crashes kills exterminates it is a battering ram capriciously assaulting a wall add to this the fact the ram is of metal the wall of wood it is matter set free one might say this eternal slave was avenging itself it seems as if the total depravity concealed in what we call inanimate things has escaped and burst forth all of a sudden it appears to lose patience and to take a strange mysterious revenge nothing more relentless than this wrath of the inanimate this enraged lump leaps like a panther it has the clumsiness of an elephant the nimbleness of a mouse the obstinacy of an ox the uncertainty of the billows the zigzag of the lightning the deafness of the grave it weighs ten thousand pounds and it rebounds like a child's ball it spins and then abruptly darts off at right angles and what is to be done how put an end to it a tempest ceases a cyclone passes over a wind dies down a broken mast can be replaced a leak can be stopped a fire extinguished but what will become of this enormous brute of bronze how can it be captured you can reason with a bulldog astonish a bull fascinate a boa frighten a tiger tame a lion but you have no resource against this monster a loose cannon you cannot kill it it is dead and at the same time it lives it lives with a sinister life which comes to it from the infinite the deck beneath it gives it full swing it is moved by the ship which is moved by the sea which is moved by the wind this destroyer is a toy the ship the waves the winds all play with it hence its frightful animation what is to be done with this apparatus how fetter this stupendous engine of destruction how anticipate its comings and goings its returns its stops its shocks any one of its blows on the side may stave it in how foretell its frightful meanderings it is dealing with a projectile which alters its mind which seems to have ideas and changes its direction every instant how check the course of what must be avoided the horrible cannon struggles advances backs strikes right strikes left retreats passes by disconcerts expectation grinds up obstacles crushes men like flies all the terror of the situation is in the fluctuations of the flooring how fight an inclined plane subject to caprices the ship has so to speak in its belly an imprisoned thunderstorm striving to escape something like a thunderbolt rumbling above an earthquake in an instant the whole crew was on foot 
it was the fault of the gun captain who had neglected to fasten the screw nuts of the mooring chain and had insecurely clogged the four wheels of the gun carriage this gave play to the sole in the framework separated the two platforms in the breaching the tackle had given way so that the cannon was no longer firm on its carriage the stationary breaching which prevents recoil was not in use at this time a heavy sea struck the port the carronade insecurely fastened had recoiled and broken its chain and began its terrible course over the deck at the moment when the fastenings gave way the gunners were in the battery some in groups others scattered about busied with the customary work among sailors getting ready for a signal for action the carronade hurled forward by the pitching of the vessel made a gap in this crowd of men and crushed four at the first blow then sliding back and shot out again as the ship rolled it cut in two a fifth unfortunate and knocked a piece of the battery against the larboard side with such force as to unship it this caused the cry of distress just heard all the men rushed to the companion way the gun deck was vacated in a twinkling the enormous gun was left alone it was given up to itself it was its own master and master of the ship it could do what it pleased this whole crew accustomed to laugh in time of battle now trembled to describe the terror is impossible captain boabertolo and lieutenant laviuvilla although both dauntless men stopped at the head of the companionway and dumb pale and hesitating looked down on the deck below someone elbowed past and went down it was their passenger the peasant the man of whom they had just been speaking a moment before reaching the foot of the companionway he stopped the cannon was rushing back and forth on the deck one might have supposed it to be the living chariot of the apocalypse the marine lantern swinging overhead added a dizzy shifting of light and shade to the picture the form of the cannon disappeared in the violence of its course and it looked now black in the light now mysteriously white in the darkness it went on in its destructive work it had already shattered four other guns and made two gaps in the side of the ship fortunately above the water-line but where the water would come in in case of heavy weather it rushed frantically against the framework the strong timbers withstood the shock the curved shape of the wood gave them great power of resistance but they creaked beneath the blows of this huge club beating on all sides at once with a strange sort of ubiquity the percussions of a grain of shot shaken in a bottle are not swifter or more senseless the four wheels passed back and forth over the dead men cutting them carving them slashing them till the five corpses were a score of stumps rolling across the deck the heads of the dead men seemed to cry out streams of blood curled over the deck with the rolling of the vessel the planks damaged in several places began to gape open the whole ship was filled with the horrid noise and confusion the captain promptly recovered his presence of mind and ordered everything that could check and impede the cannon's mad course to be thrown through the hatchway down on to the gun-deck mattresses hammocks spare sails rolls of cordage bags belonging to the crew and bales of counterfeit assigna of which the corvette carried a large quantity a characteristic piece of english villainy regarded as legitimate warfare but what could these rags do as nobody dared to go below to dispose of them properly they were reduced to lint in a few minutes there was just sea enough to make the accident as bad as possible a tempest would have been desirable for it might have upset the cannon and with its four wheels once in the air there would be some hope of getting it under control meanwhile the havoc increased 
there were splits and fractures in the masts which are set into the framework of the keel and rise above the decks of ships like great round pillars the convulsive blows of the cannon had cracked the mizzenmast and had cut into the mainmast the battery was being ruined ten pieces out of thirty were disabled the breaches in the side of the vessel were increasing and the corvette was beginning to leak the old passenger having gone down to the gun-deck stood like a man of stone at the foot of the steps he cast a stern glance over this scene of devastation he did not move it seemed impossible to take a step forward every movement of the loose carronade threatened the ship's destruction a few moments more and shipwreck would be inevitable they must perish or put a speedy end to the disaster some course must be decided upon but what what an opponent was this carronade something must be done to stop this terrible madness to capture this lightning to overthrow this thunderbolt boisbertolo said to la vieville do you believe in god chevalier la vieville replied yes no sometimes during a tempest yes and in moments like this god alone can save us from this said boisbertolo everybody was silent letting the carronade continue its horrible din outside the waves beating against the ship responded with their blows to the shocks of the cannon it was like two hammers alternating suddenly in the midst of this inaccessible ring where the escaped cannon was leaping a man was seen to appear with an iron bar in his hand he was the author of the catastrophe the captain of the gun guilty of criminal carelessness and the cause of the accident the master of the carronade having done the mischief he was anxious to repair it he had seized the iron bar in one hand a tiller rope with a slip noose in the other and jumped down the hatchway to the gun deck then began an awful sight a titanic scene the contest between gun and gunner the battle of matter and intelligence the duel between man and the inanimate the man stationed himself in a corner and with bar and rope in his two hands he leaned against one of the riders braced himself on his legs which seemed two steel posts and livid calm tragic as if rooted to the deck he waited he waited for the cannon to pass by him the gunner knew his gun and it seemed to him as if the gun ought to know him he had lived long with it how many times had he thrust his hand into its mouth it was his own familiar monster he began to speak to it as if it were his dog come he said perhaps he loved it he seemed to wish it to come to him but to come to him was to come upon him and then he would be lost how could he avoid being crushed that was the question all looked on in terror not a breast breathed freely unless perhaps that of the old man who was alone in the battery with the two contestants a stern witness he might be crushed himself by the cannon he did not stir beneath them the sea blindly directed the contest at the moment when the gunner accepting this frightful hand-to-hand -hand conflict challenged the cannon some chance rocking of the sea caused the carronade to remain for an instant motionless and as if stupefied come now said the man it seemed to listen suddenly it leaped toward him the man dodged the blow the battle began battle unprecedented frailty struggling against the invulnerable the gladiator of flesh attacking the beast of brass on one side brute force on the other a human soul all this was taking place in semi-darkness 
it was like the shadowy vision of a miracle a soul strange to say one would have thought the canon also had a soul but a soul full of hatred and rage this sightless thing seemed to have eyes the monster appeared to lie in wait for the man one would have at least believed that there was craft in this mass it also chose its time it was a strange gigantic insect of metal having or seeming to have the will of a demon for a moment this colossal locust would beat against the low ceiling overhead then it would come down on its four wheels like a tiger on its four paws and begin to run at the man he supple nimble expert writhed away like an adder from these lightning movements he avoided a collision but the blows which he parried fell against the vessel and continued their work of destruction an end of broken chain was left hanging to the carronade this chain had in some strange way become twisted about the screw of the cascabel one end of the chain was fastened to the gun carriage the other left loose whirled desperately about the cannon making all its blows more dangerous the screw held it in a firm grip adding a thong to the battering ram making a terrible whirlwind around the cannon an iron lash in a brazen hand this chain complicated the contest however the man went on fighting occasionally it was the man who attacked the cannon he would creep along the side of the vessel bar and rope in hand and the cannon as if it understood and as though suspecting some snare would flee away the man bent on victory pursued it such things cannot long continue the cannon seemed to say to itself all of a sudden come now make an end of it and it stopped one felt that the crisis was at hand the cannon as if in suspense seemed to have or really had for to all it was a living being a ferocious malice prepense it made a sudden quick dash at the gunner the gunner sprang out of the way let it pass by and cried out to it with a laugh try it again the cannon as if enraged smashed a carronade on the port side again seized by the invisible sling which controlled it was hurled to the starboard side at the man who made his escape three carronades gave way under the blows of the cannon then as if blind and not knowing what more to do it turned its back on the man rolled from stern to bow injured the stern and made a breach in the planking of the prow the man took refuge at the foot of the steps not far from the old man who was looking on the gunner held his iron bar in rest the cannon seemed to notice it and without taking the trouble to turn around slid back on the man swift as the blow of an axe the man driven against the side of the ship was lost the whole crew cried out with horror but the old passenger till this moment motionless darted forth more quickly than any of this wildly swift rapidity he seized a package of counterfeit assignia and at the risk of being crushed succeeded in throwing it between the wheels of the carronade this decisive and perilous movement could not have been made with more exactness and precision by a man trained in all the exercises described in durosel's manual of gun practice at sea the package had the effect of a clog a pebble may stop a log the branch of a tree turn aside an avalanche the carronade stumbled the gunner taking advantage of this critical opportunity plunged his iron bar between the spokes of one of the hind wheels the cannon stopped it leaned forward the man using the bar as a lever held it in equilibrium the heavy mass was overthrown with the crash of a falling bell and the man rushing with all his might dripping with perspiration passed the slip noose around the bronze neck of the subdued monster 
it was ended the man had conquered the ant had control over the mastodon the pygmy had taken the thunderbolt prisoner the mariners and sailors clapped their hands the whole crew rushed forward with cables and chains and in an instant the cannon was secured the gunner saluted the passenger sir he said you have saved my life the old man had resumed his impassive attitude and made no reply the man had conquered but the cannon might be said to have conquered as well immediate shipwreck had been avoided but the corvette was not saved the damage to the vessel seemed beyond repair there were five breaches in her sides one very large in the bow twenty of the thirty carronades lay useless in their frames the one which had just been captured and chained again was disabled the screw of the cascabel was strung and consequently levelling the gun made impossible the battery was reduced to nine pieces the ship was leaking it was necessary to repair the damages at once and to work the pumps the gun deck now that one could look over it was frightful to behold the inside of an infuriated elephant's cage would not be more completely demolished however great might be the necessity of escaping observation the necessity of immediate safety was still more imperative to the corvette they had been obliged to light up the deck with lanterns hung here and there on the sides however all the while this tragic play was going on the crew were absorbed by a question of life and death and they were wholly ignorant of what was taking place outside the vessel the fog had grown thicker the weather had changed the wind had worked its pleasure with the ship they were out of their course with jersey and guernsey close at hand further to the south than they ought to have been and in the midst of a heavy sea great billows kissed the gaping wounds of the vessel kisses full of danger the rocking of the sea threatened destruction the breeze had become a gale a squall a tempest perhaps was brewing it was impossible to see four waves ahead while the crew were hastily repairing the damages to the gun deck stopping the leaks and putting in place the guns which had been uninjured in the disaster the old passenger had gone on deck again he stood with his back against the mainmast he had not noticed a proceeding which had taken place on the vessel the chevalier de la vieuville had drawn up the marines in line on both sides of the mainmast and at the sound of the boatswain's whistle the sailors formed in line standing on the yards the comte de boisbertelot approached the passenger behind the captain walked a man haggard out of breath his dress disordered but still with a look of satisfaction on his face it was the gunner who had just shown himself so skilful in subduing monsters and who had gained mastery over the cannon the count gave the military salute to the old man in peasant's dress and said to him general there is the man the gunner remained standing with downcast eyes in military attitude the comte de boisbertelot continued general in consideration of what this man has done do you not think there is something due him from his commander i think so said the old man please give your orders replied boisbertelot it is for you to give them you are the captain but you are the general replied boisbertelot the old man looked at the gunner come forward he said the gunner approached the old man turned towards the comte de boisbertelot took off the cross of saint louis from the captain's coat and fastened it on the gunner's jacket hurrah cried the sailors the mariners presented arms and the old passenger pointing to the dazzled gunner added now have this man shot dismay succeeded the cheering then in the midst of the death-like stillness the old man raised his voice and said 
carelessness has compromised this vessel at this very hour it is perhaps lost to be at sea is to be in front of the enemy a ship making a voyage is an army waging war the tempest is concealed but it is at hand the whole sea is an ambuscade death is the penalty of any misdemeanor committed in the face of the enemy no fault is reparable courage should be rewarded and negligence punished these words fell one after another slowly solemnly in a sort of inexorable metre like the blows of an axe upon an oak and the man looking at the soldiers added let it be done the man on whose jacket hung the shining cross of saint louis bowed his head at a signal from comte de Boisbertelot, two sailors went below and came back bringing the hammock shroud the chaplain who since they sailed had been at prayer in the officers quarters accompanied the two sailors a sergeant detached twelve marines from the line and arranged them in two files six by six the gunner without uttering a word placed himself between the two files the chaplain crucifix in hand advanced and stood beside him march said the sergeant the platoon marched with slow steps to the bow of the vessel the two sailors carrying the shroud followed a gloomy silence fell over the vessel a hurricane howled in the distance a few moments later a light flashed a report sounded through the darkness then all was still and the sound of a body falling into the sea was heard the old passenger still leaning against the mainmast had crossed his arms and was buried in thought Wabertolo pointed to him with the forefinger of his left hand and said to la Villa in a low voice la vendee has a head End of a Fight with the Cannon by Victor Hugo International Short Stories, Volume 3, French Stories This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Lynn Thompson International Short Stories Volume 3 French Stories Compiled and Translated by Francis J. Reynolds Tonton by A. Chenevier There are men who seem born to be soldiers. They have the face, the bearing, the gesture, the quality of mind. But there are others who have been forced to become so in spite of themselves and of the rebellion of reason and the heart through a rash deed a disappointment in love or simply because their destiny demanded it being sons of soldiers and gentlemen such is the case of my friend captain robert de etz and i said to him one summer evening under the great trees of his terrace which is washed by the green and sluggish marne yes old fellow you are sensitive what the deuce would you have done on a campaign were you obliged to shoot to strike down with a sabre and to kill and then too you have never fought except against the arabs and that is quite another thing he smiled a little sadly his handsome mouth with its blond moustache was almost like that of a youth his blue eyes were dreamy for an instant then little by little he began to confide me his thought his recollections and all that was mystic and poetic in his soldier's heart you know we are soldiers in my family 
we have a marshal of france and two officers who died on the field of honor we have perhaps obeyed a law of heredity i believe rather that my imagination has carried me away i saw war through my reveries of epic poetry in my fancy i dwelt only upon the intoxication of victory the triumphant flourish of trumpets and women throwing flowers to the victor and then i loved the sonorous words of the great captains the dramatic representations of martial glory my father was in the third regiment of zouaves the one which was hewn in pieces at reichshofen in the niederwald and which in eighteen fifty nine at palestro made that famous charge against the austrians and hurled them into the great canal it was superb without them the italian divisions would have been lost victor emmanuel marched with the zouaves after this affair while still deeply moved not by fear but with admiration for this regiment of demons and heroes he embraced their old colonel and declared that he would be proud were he not a king to join the regiment then the zouaves acclaimed him corporal of the third and for a long time on the anniversary festival of st palestro when the roll was called they shouted corporal of the first squad in the first company of the first battalion victor emmanuel and a rough old sergeant solemnly responded sent us long into italy that is the way my father talked to us and by these recitals a soldier was made of a dreamy child but later what a disillusion where is the poetry of battle i have never made any campaign except in africa but that has been enough for me and i believe the army surgeon is right who said to me one day if instantaneous photographs could be taken after a battle and millions of copies made and scattered through the world there would be no more war the people would refuse to take part in it africa yes i have suffered there on one occasion i was sent to the south six hundred kilometers from oran beyond the oasis of fignig to destroy a tribe of rebels on this expedition we had a pretty serious affair with a military chief of the great desert called bonarigi we killed nearly all of the tribe and seized nearly fifteen hundred sheep in short it was a complete success we also captured the wives and children of the chief a dreadful thing happened at that time under my very eyes a woman was fleeing pursued by a black mounted soldier she turned around and shot at him with a revolver the horse soldier was furious and struck her down with one stroke of his sabre i did not have the time to interfere i dismounted from my horse to take the woman up she was dead and almost decapitated i uttered not one word of reproach to the turkish soldier who smiled fiercely and turned back i placed the poor body sadly on the sand and was going to remount my horse when i perceived a few steps back behind a thicket a little girl five or six years old i recognized at once that she was a tuareg of white race notwithstanding her tawny color i approached her perhaps she was not afraid of me because i was white like herself i took her on the saddle with me 
without resistance on her part and returned slowly to the place where we were to camp for the night i expected to place her under the care of the women whom we had taken prisoners and were carrying away with us but all refused saying that she was a vile little tuareg belonging to a race which carries misfortune with it and brings forth only traitors i was greatly embarrassed i would not abandon the child i felt somewhat responsible for the crime having been one of those who had directed the massacre i had made an orphan i must take her part one of the prisoners of the band had said to me i understand a little of the gibberish of these people that if i left the little one to these women they would kill her because she was the daughter of a tuareg whom the chief had preferred to them and that they hated the petted spoiled child whom he had given rich clothes and jewels what was to be done i had a wide-awake orderly a certain michel of batignon i called him and said to him take care of the little one very well captain i will take her in charge he then petted the child made her sociable and led her away with him and two hours later he had manufactured a little cradle for her out of biscuit boxes which are used on the march for making coffins in the evening michel put her to bed in it he had christened her tonton an abbreviation of tuareg in the morning the cradle was bound on an ass and behold tonton following the column with the baggage in the convoy of the rear guard under the indulgent eye of michel this lasted for days and weeks in the evening at the halting place tonton was brought to my tent with the goat which furnished her the greater part of her meals and her inseparable friend a large chameleon captured by michel and responding or not responding to the name of achilles ah oh, well old fellow you may believe me or not but it gave me pleasure to see the little one sleeping in her cradle during the short night full of alarm when i felt the weariness of living the dull sadness of seeing my companions dying one by one leaving the caravan the enervation of the perpetual state of alertness always attacking or being attacked for weeks and months i with the gentle instincts of a civilized man was forced to order the beheading of spies and traitors the binding of women in chains and the kidnapping of children to raid the herds to make of myself an attila and this had to be done without a moment of wavering and i the cold and gentle celt whom you know remained there under the scorching african sun then what repose of soul what strange meditations were mine when free at last at night in my sombre tent around which death might be prowling i could watch the little tuareg saved by me sleeping in her cradle by the side of her chameleon lizard ridiculous is it not but go there and lead the life of a brute of a plunderer and assassin and you will see how at times your civilized imagination will wander away to take refuge from itself i could have rid myself of tonton in an oasis we met some rebels bearing a flag of truce and exchanged the women for guns and ammunition i kept the little one notwithstanding the five months of march we must make before returning to Tlemcen. 
she had grown gentle was inclined to be mischievous but was yielding and almost affectionate with me she ate with the rest never wanting to sit down but running from one to another around the table she had proud little manners as if she knew herself to be a daughter of the chief's favorite obeying only the officers and treating michelle with an amusing scorn all this was to have a sad ending one day i did not find the chameleon in the cradle though i remember to have seen it there the evening before i had even taken it in my hands and caressed it before tonton who had just gone to bed then i had given it back to her and gone out accordingly i questioned her she took me by the hand and leading me to the camp fire showed me the charred skeleton of the chameleon explaining to me as best she could that she had thrown it in the fire because i had petted it oh women women and she gave a horrible imitation of the lizard writhing in the midst of the flames and she smiled with delighted eyes i was indignant i seized her by the arm shook her a little and finished by boxing her ears my dear fellow from that day she appeared not to know me tonton and i sulked we were angry however one morning as i felt the sun was going to be terrible i went myself to the baggage before the loading for departure and arranged a sheltering awning over the cradle then to make peace i embraced my little friend but as soon as we were on the march she furiously tore off the canvas with which i had covered the cradle michelle put it all in place again and there was a new revolt in short it was necessary to yield because she wanted to be able to lean outside of her box under the fiery sun to look at the head of the column of which i had the command i saw this on arriving at the resting place then michelle brought her under my tent she had not yet fallen asleep but followed with her eyes all of my movements with a grave air without a smile or gleam of mischief she refused to eat and drink the next day she was ill with sunken eyes and body burning with fever when the major wished to give her medicine she refused to take it and ground her teeth together to keep from swallowing there remained still six days march before arriving at oran i wanted to give her into the care of the nuns she died before i could do so very suddenly with a severe attack of meningitis she never wanted to see me again she was buried under a clump of african shrubs near jerryville in her little campaign cradle and do you know what was found in her cradle the charred skeleton of the poor chameleon which had been the indirect cause of her death before leaving the bivouac where she had committed her crime she had picked it out of the glowing embers and brought it into the cradle and that is why her little fingers were burned since the beginning of the meningitis the major had never been able to explain the cause of these burns robert was silent for an instant then murmured poor little one i feel remorseful if i had not given her that blow who knows she would perhaps be living still my story is sad is it not ah well it is still the sweetest of my african memories war is beautiful eh and robert shrugged his shoulders
End of Tonton by A. Chenevier. International Short Stories, Volume 3, French Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Wendy Almeida. International Short Stories, Volume 3. French Stories Compiled and Translated by Francis J. Reynolds. The Last Lesson by Alphonse Daudet. I started for school very late that morning and was in a great dread of a scolding, especially because Monsieur Hamel had said that he would question us on participles, and I did not know the first word about them. For a moment I thought of running away and spending the day out of doors. It was so warm, so bright. The birds were chirping at the edge of the woods, and in the open field back of the sawmill the Prussian soldiers were drilling. It was all much more tempting than the rule for participles, but I had the strength to resist and hurried off to school. When I passed the town hall there was a crowd in front of the bulletin board. For the last two years all our bad news had come from there. The lost battles, the draft, the orders of the commanding officer— and I thought to myself, without stopping, what can be the matter now? Then, as I hurried by as fast as I could go, the blacksmith, Wachter, who was there with his apprentice reading the bulletin, called after me. Don't go so fast, bub. You'll get to your school in plenty of time. I thought he was making fun of me, and reached Monsieur Armel's little garden all out of breath. Usually, when school began, there was a great bustle which could be heard out in the street, the opening and closing of desks, lessons repeated in unison, very loud, with our hands over our ears to understand better, and the teacher's great ruler rapping on the table. But now it was all so still. I had counted on the commotion to get to my desk without being seen, but of course that day everything had to be as quiet as Sunday morning. Through the window I saw my classmates, already in their places, and Monsieur Armel walking up and down with his terrible iron ruler under his arm. I had to open the door and go in before everybody. You can imagine how I blushed and how frightened I was. But nothing happened. Monsieur Armel saw me and said very kindly, "'Go to your place quickly, little France.' We were beginning without you. I jumped over the bench and sat down at my desk. Not till then, when I had got a little over my fright, did I see that our teacher had on his beautiful green coat, his frilled shirt, and the little black silk cap, all embroidered, that he never wore except on inspection and prize days. Besides, the whole school seemed so strange and solemn. But the thing that surprised me most was to see on the back benches that were always empty the village people sitting quietly like ourselves. Old Hauser with his three-cornered hat, the former mayor, the former postmaster, and several others besides. Everybody looked sad, and Hauser had brought an old primer thumbed at the edges, 
and he held it open on his knees with his great spectacles lying across the pages while i was wondering about it all monsieur hamel mounted his chair and in the same grave and gentle tone which he had used to me said my children this is the last lesson i shall give you the order has come from berlin to teach only german in the schools of alsace and lorraine the new master comes to-morrow this is your last french lesson i want you to be very attentive what a thunderclap these words were to me oh the wretches that was what they had put up at the town hall my last french lesson why i hardly knew how to write i should never learn any more i must stop there then oh how sorry i was for not learning my lessons for seeking birds eggs or going sliding on the saw my books that had seemed such a nuisance a while ago so heavy to carry my grammar and my history of the saints were old friends now that i couldn't give up and monsieur armel too the idea that he was going away that i should never see him again made me forget all about his ruler and how cranky he was poor man it was an honor of this last lesson that he had put on his fine sunday clothes and now i understood why the old men of the village were sitting there in the back of the room it was because they were sorry too that they had not gone to school more it was their way of thanking our master for his forty years of faithful service and of showing their respect for the country that was theirs no more while i was thinking of all this i heard my name called it was my turn to recite what would i not have given to be able to say that dreadful rule for the participle all through very loud and clear and without one mistake but i got mixed up on the first words and stood there holding on to my desk my heart beating and not daring to look up i heard monsieur armel say to me i won't scold you little france you must feel bad enough see how it is every day we have said to ourselves pah i've plenty of time i'll learn it to-morrow and now you see where we've come out ah that's the great trouble with alsace she puts off learning till to-morrow now those fellows out there will have the right to say to you how is it you pretend to be frenchmen and yet you can neither speak nor write your own language but you are not the worst poor little france we've all a great deal to reproach ourselves with your parents were not anxious enough to have you learn they preferred to put you to work on a farm or at the mills so as to have a little more money and i i've been to blame also have i not often sent you to water my flowers instead of learning your lessons and when i wanted to go fishing did i not just give you a holiday then from one thing to another monsieur armel went on to talk of the french language saying that it was the most beautiful language in the world the clearest the most logical that we must guard it among us and never forget it because when a people are enslaved as long as they hold fast to their language it is as if they had the key to their prison 
Then he opened a grammar and read us our lesson. I was amazed to see how well I understood it. All he said seemed so easy, so easy. I think, too, that I had never listened so carefully, and that he had never explained everything with so much patience. It seemed almost as if the poor man wanted to give us all he knew before going away, and to put it all into our heads at one stroke. After the grammar we had a lesson in writing. That day Monsieur Amel had new copies for us, written in a beautiful round hand. France, Alsace, France, Alsace. They looked like little flags floating everywhere in the schoolroom, hung from the rod at the top of our desks. You ought to have seen how everyone set to work, and how quiet it was. The only sound was the scratching of the pens over the paper. Once some beetles flew in, but nobody paid any attention to them, not even the littlest ones, who worked right on tracing their fish-hooks, as if that was French, too. On the roof the pigeons cooed very low, and I thought to myself, will they make them sing in German, even the pigeons? Whenever I looked up from my writing I saw Monsieur Armel sitting motionless in his chair, and gazing first at one thing, then at another, as if he wanted to fix in his mind just how everything looked in that little schoolroom. Fancy! For forty years he had been there in the same place, with his garden outside the window and his class in front of him, just like that. Only the desks and benches had been worn smooth. The walnut trees in the garden were taller, and the hop-vine that he had planted himself twined about the windows to the roof. How it must have broken his heart to leave it all, poor man! To hear his sister moving about in the room above, packing their trunks, for they must leave the country next day. But he had the courage to hear every lesson to the very last. After the writing we had a lesson in history, and then the babies chanted their ba be bi bo boo down there at the back of the room old Hauser had put on his spectacles, and, holding his primer in both hands, spelled the letters with them. You could see that he, too, was crying. His voice trembled with emotion, and it was so funny to hear him that we all wanted to laugh and cry. Ah, oh, how well I remember it, that last lesson. All at once the church clock struck twelve, then the Angelus. At the same moment the trumpets of the Prussians returning from drill sounded under our windows. Monsieur Armel stood up, very pale, in his chair. I never saw him look so tall. My friends, said he, ah, ah. But something choked him. He could not go on. Then he turned to the blackboard, took a piece of chalk, and, bearing on with all his might, he wrote as large as he could, Vive la France! Then he stopped and leaned his head against the wall, and, without a word, he made a gesture to us with his hand. School is dismissed. You may go. End of the Last Lesson by Alphonse Daudet
international short stories volume three french stories this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by bruce peary international short stories volume three french stories compiled and translated by francis j reynolds quasi part one by alfred de musset one at the beginning of the reign of louis the fifteenth a young man named croisille son of a goldsmith was returning from paris to havre his native town he had been entrusted by his father with the transaction of some business and his trip to the great city having turned out satisfactorily the joy of bringing good news caused him to walk the sixty leagues more gaily and briskly than was his wont for though he had a rather large sum of money in his pocket he travelled on foot for pleasure he was a good-tempered fellow and not without wit but so very thoughtless and flighty that people looked upon him as being rather weak-minded his doublet buttoned awry his periwig flying to the wind his hat under his arm he followed the banks of the seine at times finding enjoyment in his own thoughts and again indulging in snatches of song up at daybreak supping at wayside inns and always charmed with this stroll of his through one of the most beautiful regions of france plundering the apple-trees of normandy on his way he puzzled his brain to find rhymes for all these rattle-pates are more or less poets and tried hard to turn out a madrigal for a certain fair damsel of his native place she was no less than a daughter of a fermier general mademoiselle godot the pearl of havre a rich heiress and much courted croisille was not received at monsieur godot's otherwise than in a casual sort of way that is to say he had sometimes himself taken there articles of jewellery purchased at his father's monsieur godot whose somewhat vulgar surname ill-fitted his immense fortune avenged himself by his arrogance for the stigma of his birth and showed himself on all occasions enormously and pitilessly rich he certainly was not the man to allow the son of a goldsmith to enter his drawing-room but as mademoiselle godot had the most beautiful eyes in the world and croisille was not ill-favoured and as nothing can prevent a fine fellow from falling in love with a pretty girl croisille adored mademoiselle godot who did not seem vexed thereat thus was he thinking of her as he turned his steps toward havre and as he had never reflected seriously upon anything instead of thinking of the invincible obstacles which separated him from his lady-love he busied himself only with finding a rhyme for the christian name she bore mademoiselle godot was called julie and the rhyme was found easily enough so croisille having reached enfleur embarked with a satisfied heart his money and his madrigal in his pocket and as soon as he jumped ashore ran to the paternal house he found the shop closed and knocked again and again not without astonishment and apprehension for it was not a holiday but nobody came he called his father but in vain he went to a neighbor's to ask what had happened instead of replying the neighbor turned away as though not wishing to recognize him croisille repeated his questions 
he learned that his father his affairs having long been in an embarrassed condition had just become bankrupt and had fled to america abandoning to his creditors all that he possessed not realizing as yet the extent of his misfortune croisier felt overwhelmed by the thought that he might never again see his father it seemed to him incredible that he should be thus suddenly abandoned he tried to force an entrance into the store but was given to understand that the official seals had been affixed so he sat down on a stone and giving way to his grief began to weep piteously deaf to the consolations of those around him never ceasing to call his father's name though he knew him to be already far away at last he rose ashamed at seeing a crowd about him and in the most profound despair turned his steps towards the harbour on reaching the pier he walked straight before him like a man in a trance who knows neither where he is going nor what is to become of him he saw himself irretrievably lost possessing no longer a shelter no means of rescue and of course no longer any friends alone wandering on the seashore he felt tempted to drown himself then and there just at the moment when yielding to this thought he was advancing to the edge of a high cliff an old servant named jean who had served his family for a number of years arrived on the scene ah my poor jean he exclaimed you know all that has happened since i went away is it possible that my father could leave us without warning without farewell he is gone answered jean but indeed not without saying good-bye to you at the same time he drew from his pocket a letter which he gave to his young master quasi recognized the handwriting of his father and before opening the letter kissed it rapturously but it contained only a few words instead of feeling his trouble softened it seemed to the young man still harder to bear honourable until then and known as such the old gentleman ruined by an unforeseen disaster the bankruptcy of a partner had left for his son nothing but a few commonplace words of consolation and no hope except perhaps that vague hope without aim or reason which constitutes it is said the last possession one loses jean my friend you carried me in your arms said croisi when he had read the letter and you certainly are to-day the only being who loves me at all it is a very sweet thing to me but a very sad one for you for as sure as my father embarked there i will throw myself into the same sea which is bearing him away not before you nor at once but some day i will do it for i am lost what can you do replied jean not seeming to have understood but holding fast to the skirt of croisi's coat what can you do my dear master your father was deceived he was expecting money which did not come and it was no small amount either could he stay here i have seen him sir as he made his fortune during the thirty years that i served him i have seen him working attending to his business the crown pieces coming in one by one he was an honourable man and skilful they took a cruel advantage of him within the last few days i was still there 
and as fast as the crowns came in i saw them go out of the shop again your father paid all he could for a whole day and when his desk was empty he could not help telling me pointing to a drawer where but six francs remained there were a hundred thousand francs there this morning that does not look like a rascally failure sir there is nothing in it that can dishonor you i have no more doubt of my father's integrity answered quasi than i have of his misfortune neither do i doubt his affection but i wish i could have kissed him for what is to become of me i am not accustomed to poverty i have not the necessary cleverness to build up my fortune and if i had it my father is gone it took him thirty years how long would it take me to repair this disaster much longer and will he be living then certainly not he will die over there and i cannot even go and find him i can join him only by dying utterly distressed as quasi was he possessed much religious feeling although his despondency made him wish for death he hesitated to take his life at the first words of this interview he had taken hold of old jean's arm and thus both returned to the town when they had entered the streets and the sea was no longer so near it seems to me sir said jean that a good man has a right to live and that a misfortune proves nothing since your father has not killed himself thank god how can you think of dying since there is no dishonor in his case and all the town knows it is so what would they think of you that you felt unable to endure poverty it would be neither brave nor christian for at the very worst what is there to frighten you there are plenty of people born poor and who have never had either mother or father to help them on i know that we are not all alike but after all nothing is impossible to god what would you do in such a case your father was not born rich far from it meaning no offence and that is perhaps what consoles him now if you had been here this last month it would have given you courage yes sir a man may be ruined nobody is secure from bankruptcy but your father i make bold to say has borne himself through it all like a man though he did leave us so hastily but what could he do it is not every day that a vessel starts for america i accompanied him to the wharf and if you had seen how sad he was how he charged me to take care of you to send him news from you sir it is a right poor idea you have that throwing the helve after the hatchet every one has his time of trial in this world and i was a soldier before i was a servant i suffered severely at the time but i was young i was of your age sir and it seemed to me that providence could not have spoken his last word to a young man of twenty-five why do you wish to prevent the kind god from repairing the evil that has befallen you give him time and all will come right if i might advise you i would say just wait two or three years and i will answer for it you will come out all right it is always easy to go out of this world why will you seize an unlucky moment while jean was thus exerting himself to persuade his master the latter walked in silence and as those who suffer often do 
was looking this way and that as though seeking for something which might bind him to life as chance would have it at this juncture mademoiselle godot the daughter of the fermier general happened to pass with her governess the mansion in which she lived was not far distant quasi saw her enter it this meeting produced on him more effect than all the reasonings in the world i have said that he was rather erratic and nearly always yielded to the first impulse without hesitating an instant and without explanation he suddenly left the arm of his old servant and crossing the street knocked at m godot's door two when we try to picture to ourselves nowadays what was called a financier in times gone by we invariably imagine enormous corpulence short legs a gigantic wig and a broad face with a triple chin and it is not without reason that we have become accustomed to form such a picture of such a personage every one knows to what great abuses the royal tax farming led and it seems as though there were a law of nature which renders fatter than the rest of mankind those who fatten not only upon their own laziness but also upon the work of others Monsieur godot among financiers was one of the most classical to be found that is to say one of the fattest at the present time he had the gout which was nearly as fashionable in his day as the nervous headache is in ours stretched upon a lounge his eyes half closed he was coddling himself in the coziest corner of a dainty boudoir the panel mirrors which surrounded him majestically duplicated on every side his enormous person bags filled with gold covered the table around him the furniture the wainscot the doors the locks the mantelpiece the ceiling were gilded so was his coat i do not know but that his brain was gilded too he was calculating the issue of a little business affair which could not fail to bring him a few thousand louis and was even deigning to smile over it to himself when quasi was announced the young man entered with a humble but resolute air and with every outward manifestation of that inward tumult with which we find no difficulty in crediting a man who is longing to drown himself Monsieur godot was a little surprised at this unexpected visit then he thought his daughter had been buying some trifle and was confirmed in that thought by seeing her appear almost at the same time with the young man he made a sign to quasi not to sit down but to speak the young lady seated herself on a sofa and quasi remaining standing expressed himself in these terms sir my father has failed the bankruptcy of a partner has forced him to suspend his payments and unable to witness his own shame he has fled to america after having paid his last sou to his creditors i was absent when all this happened i have just come back and have known of these events only two hours i am absolutely without resources and determined to die it is very probable that on leaving your house i shall throw myself into the water in all probability i would already have done so if i had not chanced to meet at the very moment this young lady your daughter i love her from the very depths of my heart for two years i have been in love with her 
and my silence until now proves better than anything else the respect i feel for her but to-day in declaring my passion to you i fulfil an imperative duty and i would think i was offending god if before giving myself over to death i did not come to ask you mademoiselle julie in marriage i have not the slightest hope that you will grant this request but i have to make it nevertheless for i am a good christian sir and when a good christian sees himself come to such a point of misery that he can no longer suffer life he must at least to extenuate his crime exhaust all the chances which remain to him before taking the final and fatal step at the beginning of this speech m godeau had supposed that the young man came to borrow money and so he prudently threw his handkerchief over the bags that were lying around him preparing in advance a refusal and a polite one for he always felt some good will toward the father of croisie but when he had heard the young man to the end and understood the purport of his visit he never doubted one moment that the poor fellow had gone completely mad he was at first tempted to ring the bell and have him put out but noticing his firm demeanour his determined look the fermier general took pity on so inoffensive a case of insanity he merely told his daughter to retire so that she might be no longer exposed to hearing such improprieties while croisie was speaking mademoiselle godeau had blushed as a peach in the month of august at her father's bidding she retired the young man making her a profound bow which she did not seem to notice left alone with croisie m godeau coughed rose then dropped again upon the cushions and trying to assume a paternal air delivered himself to the following effect my boy said he i am willing to believe that you are not poking fun at me but you have really lost your head i not only excuse this proceeding but i consent not to punish you for it i am sorry that your poor devil of a father has become bankrupt and has skipped it is indeed very sad and i quite understand that such a misfortune should affect your brain besides i wish to do something for you so take this stool and sit down there it is useless sir answered croisie if you refuse me as i see you do i have nothing left but to take my leave i wish you every good fortune and where are you going to write to my father and say good-bye to him eh the devil anyone would swear you were speaking the truth i'll be damned if i don't think you are going to drown yourself yes sir at least i think so if my courage does not forsake me that's a bright idea fie on you how can you be such a fool sit down sir i tell you and listen to me Monsieur godeau had just made a very wise reflection which was that it is never agreeable to have it said that a man whoever he may be threw himself into the water on leaving your house he therefore coughed once more took his snuff-box cast a careless glance upon his shirt frill and continued it is evident that you are nothing but a simpleton a fool a regular baby you do not know what you are saying you are ruined that's what has happened to you but my dear friend all that is not enough one must reflect upon the things of this world 
if you came to ask me well good advice for instance i might give it to you but what is it you are after you are in love with my daughter yes sir and i repeat to you that i am far from supposing that you can give her to me in marriage but as there is nothing in the world but that which could prevent me from dying if you believe in god as i do not doubt you do you will understand the reason that brings me here whether i believe in god or not is no business of yours i do not intend to be questioned answer me first where have you seen my daughter in my father's shop and in this house when i brought jewellery for mademoiselle julie who told you her name was julie what are we coming to great heavens but be her name julie or javotte do you know what is wanted in any one who aspires to the hand of the daughter of a fermier general no i am completely ignorant of it unless it is to be as rich as she something more is necessary my boy you must have a name well my name is quasi your name is quasi poor wretch do you call that a name upon my soul and conscience sir it seems to me to be as good a name as godot you are very impertinent sir and you shall rue it indeed sir do not be angry i had not the least idea of offending you if you see in what i said anything to wound you and wish to punish me for it there is no need to get angry have i not told you that on leaving here i am going straight to drown myself although m godeau had promised himself to send quasi away as gently as possible in order to avoid all scandal his prudence could not resist the vexation of his wounded pride the interview to which he had to resign himself was monstrous enough in itself it may be imagined then what he felt at hearing himself spoken to in such terms listen he said almost beside himself and determined to close the matter at any cost you are not such a fool that you cannot understand a word of common sense are you rich no are you noble still less so what is this frenzy that brings you here you come to worry me you think you are doing something clever you know perfectly well that it is useless you wish to make me responsible for your death have you any right to complain of me do i owe a son to your father is it my fault that you have come to this mon dieu when a man is going to drown himself he keeps quiet about it that is what i am going to do now i am your very humble servant one moment it shall not be said that you had recourse to me in vain there my boy here are three louis d'or go and have dinner in the kitchen and let me hear no more about you much obliged i am not hungry and i have no use for your money so quasi left the room and the financier having set his conscience at rest by the offer he had just made settled himself more comfortably in his chair and resumed his meditations mademoiselle godeau during this time was not so far away as one might suppose she had it is true withdrawn in obedience to her father but instead of going to her room she had remained listening behind the door if the extravagance of quasi seemed incredible to her still she found nothing to offend her in it for love since the world has existed has never passed as an insult 
on the other hand as it was not possible to doubt the despair of the young man mademoiselle godeau found herself a victim at one and the same time to the two sentiments most dangerous to women compassion and curiosity when she saw the interview at an end and quasi ready to come out she rapidly crossed the drawing-room where she stood not wishing to be surprised eavesdropping and hurried towards her apartment but she almost immediately retraced her steps the idea that perhaps quasi was really going to put an end to his life troubled her in spite of herself scarcely aware of what she was doing she walked to meet him the drawing-room was large and the two young people came slowly towards each other quasi was as pale as death and mademoiselle godeau vainly sought words to express her feelings in passing beside him she let fall on the floor a bunch of violets which she held in her hand he at once bent down and picked up the bouquet in order to give it back to her but instead of taking it she passed on without uttering a word and entered her father's room quasi alone again put the flowers in his breast and left the house with a troubled heart not knowing what to think of his adventure three scarcely had he taken a few steps in the street when he saw his faithful friend jean running towards him with a joyful face what has happened he asked have you news to tell me yes replied jean i have to tell you that the seals have been officially broken and that you can enter your home all your father's debts being paid you remain the owner of the house it is true that all the money and all the jewels have been taken away but at least the house belongs to you and you have not lost everything i have been running about for an hour not knowing what had become of you and i hope my dear master that you will now be wise enough to take a reasonable course what course do you wish me to take sell this house sir it is all your fortune it will bring you about thirty thousand francs with that at any rate you will not die of hunger and what is to prevent you from buying a little stock in trade and starting business for yourself you would surely prosper we shall see about this answered quasi as he hurried to the street where his home was he was eager to see the paternal roof again but when he arrived there so sad a spectacle met his gaze that he had scarcely the courage to enter the shop was in utter disorder the rooms deserted his father's alcove empty everything presented to his eyes the wretchedness of utter ruin not a chair remained all the drawers had been ransacked the till broken open the chest taken away nothing had escaped the greedy search of creditors and lawyers who after having pillaged the house had gone leaving the doors open as though to testify to all passers-by how neatly their work was done this then exclaimed quasi is all that remains after thirty years of work and a respectable life and all through the failure to have ready on a given day money enough to honor a signature imprudently given while the young man walked up and down given over to the saddest thoughts jean seemed very much embarrassed he supposed that his master was without ready money and that he might perhaps not even have dined 
he was therefore trying to think of some way to question him on the subject and to offer him in case of need some part of his savings after having tortured his mind for a quarter of an hour to try and hit upon some way of leading up to the subject he could find nothing better than to come up to croisier and ask him in a kindly voice sir do you still like roast partridges the poor man uttered this question in a tone at once so comical and so touching that croisier in spite of his sadness could not refrain from laughing and why do you ask me that said he my wife replied jean is cooking me some for dinner sir and if by chance you still like them croisier had completely forgotten till now the money which he was bringing back to his father jean's proposal reminded him that his pockets were full of gold i thank you with all my heart said he to the old man and i accept your dinner with pleasure but if you are anxious about my fortune be reassured i have more money than i need to have a good supper this evening which you in your turn will share with me saying this he laid upon the mantel four well-filled purses which he emptied each containing fifty louis although this sum does not belong to me he added i can use it for a day or two to whom must i go to have it forwarded to my father sir replied jean eagerly your father especially charged me to tell you that this money belongs to you and if i did not speak of it before it was because i did not know how your affairs in paris had turned out where he has gone your father will want for nothing he will lodge with one of your correspondents who will receive him most gladly he has moreover taken with him enough for his immediate needs for he was quite sure of still leaving behind more than was necessary to pay all his just debts all that he has left sir is yours he says so himself in his letter and i am especially charged to repeat it to you that gold is therefore legitimately your property as this house in which we are now i can repeat to you the very words your father said to me on embarking may my son forgive me for leaving him may he remember that i am still in the world only to love me and let him use what remains after my debts are paid as though it were his inheritance those sir are his own expressions so put this back in your pocket and since you accept my dinner pray let us go home the honest joy which shone in jean's eyes left no doubt in the mind of croisie the words of his father had moved him to such a point that he could not restrain his tears on the other hand at such a moment four thousand francs were no bagatelle as to the house it was not an available resource for one could realize on it only by selling it and that was both difficult and slow all this however could not but make a considerable change in the situation the young man found himself in so he felt suddenly moved shaken in his dismal resolution and so to speak both sad and at the same time relieved of much of his distress after having closed the shutters of the shop he left the house with jean and as he once more crossed the town could not help thinking how small a thing our affections are since they sometimes serve to make us find an unforeseen joy in the faintest ray of hope 
it was with this thought that he sat down to dinner beside his old servant who did not fail during the repast to make every effort to cheer him heedless people have a happy fault they are easily cast down but they have not even the trouble to console themselves so changeable is their mind it would be a mistake to think them on that account insensible or selfish on the contrary they perhaps feel more keenly than others and are but too prone to blow their brains out in the moment of despair but this moment once passed if they are still alive they must dine they must eat they must drink as usual only to melt into tears again at bedtime joy and pain do not glide over them but pierce them through like arrows kind hot-headed natures which know how to suffer but not how to lie through which one can clearly read not fragile and empty like glass but solid and transparent like rock crystal after having clinked glasses with jean croisie instead of drowning himself went to the play standing at the back of the pit he drew from his bosom mademoiselle godot's bouquet and as he breathed the perfume in deep meditation he began to think in a calmer spirit about his adventure of the morning as soon as he had pondered over it for a while he saw clearly the truth that is to say that the young lady in leaving the bouquet in his hands and in refusing to take it back had wished to give him a mark of interest for otherwise this refusal and this silence could only have been marks of contempt and such a supposition was not possible croisie therefore judged that mademoiselle godot's heart was of a softer grain than her father's and he remembered distinctly that the young lady's face when she crossed the drawing-room had expressed an emotion the more true that it seemed involuntary but was this emotion one of love or only of sympathy or was it perhaps something of still less importance mere commonplace pity had mademoiselle godot feared to see him die him quasi or merely to be the cause of the death of a man no matter what man although withered and almost leafless the bouquet still retained so exquisite an odour and so brave a look that in breathing it and looking at it quasi could not help hoping it was a thin garland of roses round a bunch of violets what mysterious depths of sentiment an oriental might have read in these flowers by interpreting their language but after all he need not be an oriental in this case the flowers which fall from the breast of a pretty woman in europe as in the east are never mute were they but to tell what they have seen while reposing in that lovely bosom it would be enough for a lover and this in fact they do perfumes have more than one resemblance to love and there are even people who think love to be but a sort of perfume it is true the flowers which exhale it are the most beautiful in creation while croisie mused thus paying very little attention to the tragedy that was being acted at the time mademoiselle godot herself appeared in a box opposite 
the idea did not occur to the young man that if she should notice him she might think it very strange to find the would-be suicide there after what had transpired in the morning he on the contrary bent all his efforts towards getting nearer to her but he could not succeed a fifth-rate actress from paris had come to play merope and the crowd was so dense that one could not move for lack of anything better quasi had to content himself with fixing his gaze upon his lady-love not lifting his eyes from her for a moment he noticed that she seemed preoccupied and moody and that she spoke to every one with a sort of repugnance her box was surrounded as may be imagined by all the fops of the neighbourhood each of whom passed several times before her in the gallery totally unable to enter the box of which her father filled more than three-fourths quasi noticed further that she was not using her opera-glasses nor was she listening to the play her elbows resting on the balustrade her chin in her hand with her far-away look she seemed in all her sumptuous apparel like some statue of venus disguised en marquise the display of her dress and her hair her rouge beneath which one could guess her paleness all the splendour of her toilet did but the more distinctly bring out the immobility of her countenance never had quasi seen her so beautiful having found means between the acts to escape from the crush he hurried off to look at her from the passage leading to her box and strange to say scarcely had he reached it when mademoiselle godeau who had not stirred for the last hour turned round she started slightly as she noticed him and only cast a glance at him then she resumed her former attitude whether that glance expressed surprise anxiety pleasure or love whether it meant what not dead or god be praised there you are living i do not pretend to explain be that as it may at that glance quasi inwardly swore to himself to die or gain her love end of quasi part one by alfred de musset international short stories volume three french stories this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by bruce peary international short stories volume three french stories compiled and translated by francis j reynolds croisille part two by alfred de musset four of all the obstacles which hinder the smooth course of love the greatest is without doubt what is called false shame which is indeed a very potent obstacle croisille was not troubled with this unhappy failing which both pride and timidity combined to produce he was not one of those who for whole months hover round the woman they love like a cat round a caged bird as soon as he had given up the idea of drowning himself he thought only of letting his dear julie know that he lived solely for her but how could he tell her so 
should he present himself a second time at the mansion of the fermier general it was but too certain that monsieur godeau would have him ejected julie when she happened to take a walk never went without her maid it was therefore useless to undertake to follow her to pass the nights under the windows of one's beloved is a folly dear to lovers but in the present case it would certainly prove vain i said before that croisilles was very religious it therefore never entered his mind to seek to meet his lady-love at church as the best way though the most dangerous is to write to people when one cannot speak to them in person he decided on the very next day to write to the young lady his letter possessed naturally neither order nor reason it read somewhat as follows mademoiselle tell me exactly i beg of you what fortune one must possess to be able to pretend to your hand i am asking you a strange question but i love you so desperately that it is impossible for me not to ask it and you are the only person in the world to whom i can address it it seemed to me last evening that you looked at me at the play i had wished to die would to god i were indeed dead if i am mistaken and if that look was not meant for me tell me if fate can be so cruel as to let a man deceive himself in a manner at once so sad and so sweet i believe that you commanded me to live you are rich beautiful i know it your father is arrogant and miserly and you have a right to be proud but i love you and the rest is a dream fix your charming eyes on me think of what love can do when i who suffer so cruelly who must stand in fear of everything feel nevertheless an inexpressible joy in writing you this mad letter which will perhaps bring down your anger upon me but think also mademoiselle that you are a little to blame for this my folly why did you drop that bouquet put yourself for an instant if possible in my place i dare think that you love me and i dare ask you to tell me so forgive me i beseech you i would give my life's blood to be sure of not offending you and to see you listening to my love with that angel smile which belongs only to you whatever you may do your image remains mine you can remove it only by tearing out my heart as long as your look lives in my remembrance as long as the bouquet keeps a trace of its perfume as long as a word will tell of love i will cherish hope having sealed his letter croisilles went out and walked up and down the street opposite the godot mansion waiting for a servant to come out chance which always serves mysterious loves when it can do so without compromising itself willed it that mademoiselle julie's maid should have arranged to purchase a cap on that day she was going to the milliner's when croisilles accosted her slipped a louis into her hand and asked her to take charge of his letter the bargain was soon struck the servant took the money to pay for her cap and promised to do the errand out of gratitude croisilles full of joy went home and sat at his door awaiting an answer before speaking of this answer a word must be said about mademoiselle godeau she was not quite free from the vanity of her father but her good nature was ever uppermost she was in the full meaning of the term a spoilt child she habitually spoke very little and never was she seen with a needle in her hand 
she spent her days at her toilet and her evenings on the sofa not seeming to hear the conversation going on around her as regards her dress she was prodigiously coquettish and her own face was surely what she thought most of on earth a wrinkle in her collarette an ink-spot on her finger would have distressed her and when her dress pleased her nothing can describe the last look which she cast at her mirror before leaving the room she showed neither taste nor aversion for the pleasures in which young ladies usually delight she went to balls willingly enough and renounced going to them without a show of temper sometimes without motive the play wearied her and she was in the constant habit of falling asleep there when her father who worshipped her proposed to make her some present of her own choice she took an hour to decide not being able to think of anything she cared for when monsieur godot gave a reception or a dinner it often happened that julie would not appear in the drawing-room and at such times she passed the evening alone in her own room in full dress walking up and down her fan in her hand if a compliment was addressed to her she turned away her head and if any one attempted to pay court to her she responded only by a look at once so dazzling and so serious as to disconcert even the boldest never had a sally made her laugh never had an air in an opera a flight of tragedy moved her indeed never had her heart given a sign of life and on seeing her pass in all the splendor of her nonchalant loveliness one might have taken her for a beautiful somnambulist walking through the world as in a trance so much indifference and coquetry did not seem easy to understand some said she loved nothing others that she loved nothing but herself a single word however suffices to explain her character she was waiting from the age of fourteen she had heard it ceaselessly repeated that nothing was so charming as she she was convinced of this and that was why she paid so much attention to dress in failing to do honor to her own person she would have thought herself guilty of sacrilege she walked in her beauty so to speak like a child in its holiday dress but she was very far from thinking that her beauty was to remain useless beneath her apparent unconcern she had a will secret inflexible and the more potent the better it was concealed the coquetry of ordinary women which spends itself in ogling in simpering and in smiling seemed to her a childish vain almost contemptible way of fighting with shadows she felt herself in possession of a treasure and she disdained to stake it piece by piece she needed an adversary worthy of herself but too accustomed to see her wishes anticipated she did not seek that adversary it may even be said that she felt astonished at his failing to present himself for the four or five years that she had been out in society and had conscientiously displayed her flowers her furbelows and her beautiful shoulders it seemed to her inconceivable that she had not yet inspired some great passion had she said what was really behind her thoughts she certainly would have replied to her many flatterers well if it is true that i am so beautiful why do you not blow your brains out for me 
an answer which many other young girls might make and which more than one who says nothing hides away in a corner of her heart not far perhaps from the tip of her tongue what is there indeed in the world more tantalizing for a woman than to be young rich beautiful to look at herself in her mirror and see herself charmingly dressed worthy in every way to please fully disposed to allow herself to be loved and to have to say to herself i am admired i am praised all the world thinks me charming but nobody loves me my gown is by the best maker my laces are superb my coiffure is irreproachable my face the most beautiful on earth my figure slender my foot prettily turned and all this helps me to nothing but to go and yawn in the corner of some drawing-room if a young man speaks to me he treats me as a child if i am asked in marriage it is for my dowry if somebody presses my hand in a dance it is sure to be some provincial fop as soon as i appear anywhere i excite a murmur of admiration but nobody speaks low in my ear a word that makes my heart beat i hear impertinent men praising me in loud tones a couple of feet away and never a look of humbly sincere adoration meets mine still i have an ardent soul full of life and i am not by any means only a pretty doll to be shown about to be made to dance at a ball to be dressed by a maid in the morning and undressed at night beginning the whole thing over again the next day that is what mademoiselle godeau had many times said to herself and there were hours when that thought inspired her with so gloomy a feeling that she remained mute and almost motionless for a whole day when Quasi wrote her, she was in just such a fit of ill-humour. She had just been taking her chocolate, and was deep in meditation, stretched upon a lounge, when her maid entered, and handed her the letter, with a mysterious air. She looked at the address, and, not recognising the handwriting, fell again to musing. The maid then saw herself forced to explain what it was which she did with a rather disconcerted air not being at all sure how the young lady would take the matter mademoiselle godeau listened without moving then opened the letter and cast only a glance at it she at once asked for a sheet of paper and nonchalantly wrote these few words no sir i assure you i am not proud if you had only a hundred thousand crowns i would willingly marry you such was the reply which the maid at once took to Quasille, who gave her another louis for her trouble. Five. A hundred thousand crowns are not found in a donkey's hoof-print, and if Quasille had been suspicious he might have thought, in reading Mademoiselle Godeau's letter, that she was either crazy or laughing at him. He thought neither, for he only saw in it that his darling Julie loved him and that he must have a hundred thousand crowns and he dreamed from that moment of nothing but trying to secure them he possessed two hundred louis in cash plus a house which as i have said might be worth about thirty thousand francs what was to be done how was he to go about transfiguring these thirty-four thousand francs at a jump into three hundred thousand the first idea which came into the mind of the young man was to find some way of staking his whole fortune on the toss-up of a coin 
but for that he must sell the house quasi therefore began by putting a notice upon the door stating that his house was for sale then while dreaming what he would do with the money that he would get for it he awaited a purchaser a week went by then another not a single purchaser applied more and more distressed croisi spent these days with jean and despair was taking possession of him once more when a jewish broker rang at the door this house is for sale sir is it not are you the owner of it yes sir and how much is it worth thirty thousand francs i believe at least i have heard my father say so the jew visited all the rooms went upstairs and down into the cellar knocking on the walls counting the steps of the staircase turning the doors on their hinges and the keys in their locks opening and closing the windows then at last after having thoroughly examined everything without saying a word and without making the slightest proposal he bowed to croisille and retired croisille who for a whole hour had followed him with a palpitating heart as may be imagined was not a little disappointed at this silent retreat he thought that perhaps the jew had wished to give himself time to reflect and that he would return presently he waited a week for him not daring to go out for fear of missing his visit and looking out of the windows from morning till night but it was in vain the jew did not reappear jean true to his unpleasant role of adviser brought moral pressure to bear to dissuade his master from selling his house in so hasty a manner and for so extravagant a purpose dying of impatience ennui and love croisi one morning took his two hundred louis and went out determined to tempt fortune with this sum since he could not have more the gaming-houses at that time were not public and that refinement of civilization which enables the first-comer to ruin himself at all hours as soon as the wish enters his mind had not yet been invented scarcely was croisi in the street before he stopped not knowing where to go to stake his money he looked at the houses of the neighborhood and eyed them one after the other striving to discover suspicious appearances that might point out to him the object of his search a good-looking young man splendidly dressed happened to pass judging from his mien he was certainly a young man of gentle blood and ample leisure so croisi politely accosted him sir he said i beg your pardon for the liberty i take i have two hundred louis in my pocket and i am dying either to lose them or win more could you not point out to me some respectable place where such things are done at this rather strange speech the young man burst out laughing upon my word sir answered he if you are seeking any such wicked place you have but to follow me for that is just where i am going croisi followed him and a few steps farther they both entered a house of very attractive appearance where they were received hospitably by an old gentleman of the highest breeding several young men were already seated round a green cloth croisi modestly took a place there and in less than an hour his two hundred louis were gone he came out as sad as a lover can be who thinks himself beloved he had not enough to dine with but that did not cause him any anxiety what can i do now he asked himself to get money to whom shall i address myself in this town 
who will lend me even a hundred louis on this house that i cannot sell while he was in this quandary he met his jewish broker he did not hesitate to address him and featherhead as he was did not fail to tell him the plight he was in the jew did not much want to buy the house he had come to see it only through curiosity or to speak more exactly for the satisfaction of his own conscience as a passing dog goes into a kitchen the door of which stands open to see if there is anything to steal but when he saw croisille so despondent so sad so bereft of all resources he could not resist the temptation to put himself to some inconvenience even in order to pay for the house he therefore offered him about one-fourth of its value croisille fell upon his neck called him his friend and saviour blindly signed a bargain that would have made one's hair stand on end and on the very next day the possessor of four hundred new louis he once more turned his steps toward the gambling-house where he had been so politely and speedily ruined the night before on his way he passed by the wharf a vessel was about leaving the wind was gentle the ocean tranquil on all sides merchants sailors officers in uniform were coming and going porters were carrying enormous bales of merchandise passengers and their friends were exchanging farewells small boats were rowing about in all directions on every face could be read fear impatience or hope and amidst all the agitation which surrounded it the majestic vessel swayed gently to and fro under the wind that swelled her proud sails what a grand thing it is thought croisille to risk all one possesses and go beyond the sea in perilous search of fortune how it fills me with emotion to look at this vessel setting out on her voyage loaded with so much wealth with the welfare of so many families what joy to see her come back again bringing twice as much as was entrusted to her returning so much prouder and richer than she went away why am i not one of those merchants why could i not stake my four hundred louis in this way this immense sea what a green cloth on which to boldly tempt fortune why should i not myself buy a few bales of cloth or silk what is to prevent my doing so since i have gold why should this captain refuse to take charge of my merchandise and who knows instead of going and throwing away this my little all in a gambling-house i might double it i might triple it perhaps by honest industry if julie truly loves me she will wait a few years she will remain true to me until i am able to marry her commerce sometimes yields greater profits than one thinks examples are not wanting in this world of wealth gained with astonishing rapidity in this way on the changing waves why should providence not bless an endeavour made for a purpose so laudable so worthy of his assistance among these merchants who have accumulated so much and who send their vessels to the ends of the world more than one has begun with a smaller sum than i have now they have prospered with the help of god why should i not prosper in my turn it seems to me as though a good wind were filling these sails and this vessel inspires confidence come the die is cast i will speak to the captain who seems to be a good fellow i will then write to julie and set out to become a clever and successful trader 
the greatest danger incurred by those who are habitually but half crazy is that of becoming at times altogether so the poor fellow without further deliberation put his whim into execution to find goods to buy when one has money and knows nothing about the goods is the easiest thing in the world the captain to oblige quasi took him to one of his friends a manufacturer who sold him as much cloth and silk as he could pay for the whole of it loaded upon a cart was promptly taken on board quasi delighted and full of hope had himself written in large letters his name upon the bales he watched them being put on board with inexpressible joy the hour of departure soon came and the vessel weighed anchor six i need not say that in this transaction quasi had kept no money in hand his house was sold and there remained to him for his sole fortune the clothes he had on his back no home and not a sou with the best will possible jean could not suppose that his master was reduced to such an extremity quasi was not too proud but too thoughtless to tell him of it so he determined to sleep under the starry vault and as for his meals he made the following calculation he presumed that the vessel which bore his fortune would be six months before coming back to havre quasi therefore not without regret sold a gold watch his father had given him and which he had fortunately kept he got thirty-six livres for it that was sufficient to live on for about six months at the rate of four sous a day he did not doubt that it would be enough and reassured for the present he wrote to mademoiselle godot to inform her of what he had done he was very careful in his letter not to speak of his distress he announced to her on the contrary that he had undertaken a magnificent commercial enterprise of the speedy and fortunate issue of which there could be no doubt he explained to her that la fleurette a merchant vessel of one hundred and fifty tons was carrying to the baltic his cloths and his silks and implored her to remain faithful to him for a year reserving to himself the right of asking later on for a further delay while for his part he swore eternal love to her when mademoiselle godot received this letter she was sitting before the fire and had in her hand using it as a screen one of those bulletins which are printed in seaports announcing the arrival and departure of vessels and which also report disasters at sea it had never occurred to her as one can well imagine to take an interest in this sort of thing she had in fact never glanced at any of these sheets the perusal of croisie's letter prompted her to read the bulletin she had been holding in her hand the first word that caught her eye was no other than the name of la fleurette the vessel had been wrecked on the coast of france on the very night following its departure the crew had barely escaped but all the cargo was lost mademoiselle godot at this news no longer remembered that croisie had made to her an avowal of his poverty she was as heartbroken as though a million had been at stake in an instant the horrors of the tempest the fury of the winds the cries of the drowning the ruin of the man who loved her 
presented themselves to her mind like a scene in a romance the bulletin and the letter fell from her hands she rose in great agitation and with heaving breast and eyes brimming with tears paced up and down determined to act and asking herself how she should act there is one thing that must be said in justice to love it is that the stronger the clearer the simpler the considerations opposed to it in a word the less common sense there is in the matter the wilder does the passion become and the more does the lover love it is one of the most beautiful things under heaven this irrationality of the heart we should not be worth much without it after having walked about the room without forgetting either her dear fan or the passing glance at the mirror julie allowed herself to sink once more upon her lounge whoever had seen her at this moment would have looked upon a lovely sight her eyes sparkled her cheeks were on fire she sighed deeply and murmured in a delicious transport of joy and pain poor fellow he has ruined himself for me independently of the fortune which she could expect from her father mademoiselle godeau had in her own right the property her mother had left her she had never thought of it at this moment for the first time in her life she remembered that she could dispose of five hundred thousand francs this thought brought a smile to her lips a project strange bold wholly feminine almost as mad as croisier himself entered her head she weighed the idea in her mind for some time then decided to act upon it at once she began by inquiring whether croisier had any relatives or friends the maid was sent out in all directions to find out having made minute inquiries in all quarters she discovered on the fourth floor of an old rickety house a half-crippled aunt who never stirred from her armchair and had not been out for four or five years this poor woman very old seemed to have been left in the world expressly as a specimen of hungry misery blind gouty almost deaf she lived alone in a garret but a gaiety stronger than misfortune and illness sustained her at eighty years of age and made her still love life her neighbors never passed her door without going in to see her and the antiquated tunes she hummed enlivened all the girls of the neighborhood she possessed a little annuity which sufficed to maintain her as long as day lasted she knitted she did not know what had happened since the death of louis the fourteenth it was to this worthy person that julie had herself privately conducted she donned for the occasion all her finery feathers laces ribbons diamonds nothing was spared she wanted to be fascinating but the real secret of her beauty in this case was the whim that was carrying her away she went up the steep dark staircase which led to the good lady's chamber and after the most graceful bow spoke somewhat as follows you have madame a nephew called croisie who loves me and has asked for my hand i love him too and wish to marry him but my father monsieur godeau fermier general of this town refuses his consent because your nephew is not rich 
i would not for the world give occasion to scandal nor cause trouble to anybody i would therefore never think of disposing of myself without the consent of my family i come to ask you a favour which i beseech you to grant me you must come yourself and propose this marriage to my father i have thank god a little fortune which is quite at your disposal you may take possession whenever you see fit of five hundred thousand francs at my notary's you will say that this sum belongs to your nephew which in fact it does it is not a present that i am making him it is a debt which i am paying for i am the cause of the ruin of croisie and it is but just that i should repair it my father will not easily give in you will be obliged to insist and you must have a little courage i for my part will not fail as nobody on earth excepting myself has any right to the sum of which i am speaking to you nobody will ever know in what way this amount will have passed into your hands you are not very rich yourself i know and you may fear that people will be astonished to see you thus endowing your nephew but remember that my father does not know you that you show yourself very little in town and that consequently it will be easy for you to pretend that you have just arrived from some journey this step will doubtless be some exertion to you you will have to leave your armchair and take a little trouble but you will make two people happy madame and if you have ever known love i hope you will not refuse me the old lady during this discourse had been in turn surprised anxious touched and delighted the last words persuaded her yes my child she repeated several times i know what it is i know what it is as she said this she made an effort to rise her feeble limbs could barely support her julie quickly advanced and put out her hand to help her by an almost involuntary movement they found themselves in an instant in each other's arms a treaty was at once concluded a warm kiss sealed it in advance and the necessary and confidential consultation followed without further trouble all the explanations having been made the good lady drew from her wardrobe a venerable gown of taffeta which had been her wedding dress this antique piece of property was not less than fifty years old but not a spot not a grain of dust had disfigured it julie was in ecstasies over it a coach was sent for the handsomest in the town the good lady prepared the speech she was going to make to monsieur godot julie tried to teach her how she was to touch the heart of her father and did not hesitate to confess that love of rank was his vulnerable point if you could imagine said she a means of flattering this weakness you will have won our cause the good lady pondered deeply finished her toilet without another word clasped the hands of her future niece and entered the carriage she soon arrived at the godot mansion there she braced herself up so gallantly for her entrance that she seemed ten years younger she majestically crossed the drawing-room where julie's bouquet had fallen and when the door of the boudoir opened said in a firm voice to the lackey who preceded her announce the dowager baroness de croisy 
these words settled the happiness of the two lovers Monsieur godeau was bewildered by them although five hundred thousand francs seemed little to him he consented to everything in order to make his daughter a baroness and such she became who would dare contest her title for my part i think she had thoroughly earned it end of quasi part two by alfred de musset International Short Stories, Volume 3, French Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marina Tsong. International Short Stories, Volume 3. French Stories, compiled and translated by Francis J. Reynolds. The Vase of Clay by jean Eckart. jean had inherited from his father a little field close beside the sea round this field the branches of the pine trees murmured a response to the plashing of the waves beneath the pines the soil was red and the crimson shade of the earth mingling with the blue waves of the bay gave them a pensive violet hue most of all in the quiet evening hours dear to reveries and dreams in this field grew roses and raspberries the pretty girls of the neighborhood came to jean's home to buy these fruits and flowers so like their own lips and cheeks the roses the lips and the berries had all the same youth had all the same beauty jean lived happily beside the sea at the foot of the hills beneath an olive tree planted near his door which in all seasons threw a lance-like blue shadow upon his white wall. Near the olive tree was a well, the water of which was so cold and pure that the girls of the region, with their cheeks like roses and their lips like raspberries, came thither night and morning with their jugs. Upon their hats, covered with pads, they carried their jugs, round and slender as themselves, supporting them with their beautiful bare arms, raised aloft like living handles. Jean observed all these things, and admired them, and blessed his life. As he was only twenty years old, he fondly loved one of the charming girls, who drew water from his well, who ate his raspberries, and breathed the fragrances of his roses. He told this younger girl, that she was as pure and fresh as the water, as delicious as the raspberries, and as sweet as the roses. Then the young girl smiled. He told it her again, and she made a face at him. He sang her the same song, and she married a sailor, who carried her far away beyond the sea. Jean wept bitterly, but he still admired beautiful things, and still blessed his life. Sometimes he thought that the frailty of what is beautiful and the brevity of what is good adds value to the beauty and goodness of all things. One day he learned by chance that the red earth of his field was an excellent clay. 
He took a little of it in his hand, moistened it with water from his well, and fashioned a simple vase, while he thought of those beautiful girls, who are like the ancient Greek jars, at once round and slender. The earth in his field was indeed excellent clay. He built himself a potter's wheel. With his own hands and with his clay, he built a furnace against the wall of his house, and he set himself to making little pots to hold raspberries. He became skillful at this work, and all the gardeners round about came to him to provide themselves with these light, porous pots of a beautiful red hue, round and slender, wherein the raspberries could be heaped without crushing them, and where they slept under the shelter of a green leaf. The leaf, the pot, the raspberries, these enchanted everybody by their form and colour, and the buyers in the city market would have no berries save those which were sold in Jean de Potter's round and slender pots. Now more than ever the beautiful girls visited John's field. Now they brought baskets of woven reeds in which they piled the empty pots, red and fresh. But now Jean observed them without desire. His heart was forevermore far away beyond the sea. Still, as he deepened and broadened the ditch in his field, from which he took the clay, he saw that his pots to hold the raspberries were variously coloured, tinted sometimes with rose, sometimes with blue or violet, sometimes with black or green. These shades of the clay reminded him of the loveliest things which had gladdened his eyes. Plants, flowers, ocean, sky. Then he set himself to choose in making his vases, shades of clay, which he mingled delicately. And these colours, produced by centuries of alternating lights and shadows, obeyed his will, changed in a moment according to his desire. Each day he modelled hundreds of these raspberry pots, moulding them upon the wheel, which turned like a sun beneath the pressure of his agile foot. The mass of shapeless clay, turning on the centre of the disc, under the touch of his finger, suddenly raised itself like the petals of a lily, lengthened, broadened, swelled or shrank, submissive to his will. The creative potter loved the clay. As he still dreamed of the things which he had most admired, his thought, his remembrance, his will, descended into his fingers, where, without his knowing how, they communicated to the clay that mysterious principle of life which the wisest man is unable to define. The humble works of Jean the Potter had marvellous graces. In such a curve, in such a tint, he put some memory of youth, or of an opening blossom, or the very colour of the weather, and of joy or sorrow. In his hours of repose, he walked with his eyes fixed upon the ground, studying the variations in the colour of the soil on the cliffs, on the plains, on the sides of the hills. And the wish came to him to model a unique vase, 
a marvelous vase, in which should live through all eternity something of all the fragile beauties which his eyes had gazed upon, something even of all the brief joys which his heart had known, and even a little of his divine sorrows of hope, regret, and love. He was then in the full strength and vigor of manhood. Yet, that he might the better meditate upon his desire, he forsook the well-paid work, which, it is true, had allowed him to lay aside a little hoard. No longer, as of old, his wheel turned from morning until night. He permitted other potters to manufacture raspberry pots by the thousand. The merchants forgot the way to Jean's field. The young girls still came there for pleasure, because of the cold water, the roses, and the raspberries. But the ill-cultivated raspberries perished. The rose vines ran wild, climbed to the tops of the high walls, and offered their dusty blossoms to the travelers on the road. The water in the well alone remained the same, cold and plenteous, and that sufficed to draw about Jean eternal youth and eternal gaiety. Only youth had grown mocking for Jean, for him gaiety had now become scoffing. Ah, Master Jean, does not your furnace burn any more? Your wheel, Master Jean, does it scarcely ever turn? When shall we see your amazing pot, which will be as beautiful as everything which is beautiful, blooming like the rose? beat it like the raspberry, and speaking, if we must believe what you say about it, like our lips. Now Jean is aging, Jean is old. He sits upon his stone seat, beside the well, under the lace-like shade of the olive tree, in front of his empty field, all the soil of which is good clay, but which no longer produces either raspberries or roses. Jean said formerly, there are three things, roses, raspberries, lips. All the three have forsaken him. The lips of the young girls, and even those of the children, have become scoffing. Ah, oh, Father John, do you live like the grasshoppers? Nobody ever sees you eat, Father John. Father John lives in cold water. The man who grows old becomes a child again. What will you put into your beautiful vase? If you ever make it, silly old fellow, it will not hold even a drop of water from your well. Go and paint the handcuffs and make water jugs. Jean silently shakes his head and only replies to all his railleries by a kindly smile. He is good to animals and he shares his dry bread with the poor. It is true that he eats scarcely anything, but he does not suffer in consequence. He is very thin, but his flesh is all the more sound and wholesome. Under the arch of his eyebrows, his old eyes, hateful of the world, continue to sparkle with the clearness of the spring which reflects the light. One bright morning, upon his wheel, which turns to the rhythmic motion of his foot, Jean sets himself to model a vase, the vase which he has long seen with his mind's eye. 
The horizontal wheel turns like a sun to the rhythmic beating of his foot. The wheel turns. The clay vase rises, falls, swells, becomes crushed into a shapeless mass to be born again under Jean's hand. At last, with one single burst, it springs forth like an unlooked-for flower from an invisible stem. It blooms triumphantly, and the old man bears it in his trembling hands to the carefully prepared furnace, where fire must add to its beauty of form the elusive, decisive beauty of color. All through the night, Jean has kept up and carefully regulated the furnace fire, that artisan of delicate gradations of color. At dawn, the work must be finished, and the potter, old and dying, and his deserted field, raises toward the light of the rising sun the dainty form, born of himself, in which he longs to find in perfect harmony the dream of his long life. In the form and tent of the frail little vase, he has wished to fix for all time the ephemeral forms and colors of all the most beautiful things. O God of day, the miracle is accomplished. The sun lights the round and slender curves, the colorations infinitely refined, which blend harmoniously and bring back to the soul of the aged man, by the pathway of his eyes, the sweetest joys of his youth, the skies of daybreak, and the mournful violet waves of the sea beneath the setting sun. O miracle of art, in which life is thus epitomized to make joy eternal. The humble artist raises toward the sun his fragile masterpiece, the flower of his simple heart. He raises it in his trembling hands, as though to offer it to the unknown divinities who created primeval beauty. But his hands, too weak and trembling, let it escape from them suddenly, even as his tottering body lets his soul escape, and the potter's dream, fallen with him to the ground, breaks and scatters into fragments. Where is it now, the form of that face brought to the light for an instant, and seen only by the sun and the humble artist? Surely it must be somewhere, that pure and happy form of the divine dream, made real for an instant. End of the Vase of Clay by Jeanne Carr End of International Short Stories, Volume 3, French Stories, Compiled and Translated by Francis J. Reynolds